Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm an integrative and functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in well over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a school in practitioner mentorship where we help other clinicians level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what this show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I would love for you to subscribe to the show, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Now give me the mic so I can take it away. Hello, friends. Today, I have Dr. Jolene Brighton back on the show. She was first on the podcast in 2019, where she talked about her first book, Beyond the Pill. And now she has another book baby called Is This Normal?, which is an absolute must buy. It is the book that I wish I had when I was 13 years old and then like 15 years old and then like 20 years old and so on and so forth. She really unpacks some pretty uncomfortable conversations and really gives you super candid, straightforward advice on how to interface with your body. I'm such a fan of Dr. Brighton's work, um, not just of her research, but her willingness to be an advocate and a voice piece and have these conversations that not really everybody wants to have, but we should be having. Dr. Brighton is such a spitfire, and I love that about her. And you'll see that today we get into some potentially controversial or disruptive topics. So, you know, as always, take what you want leave the rest. Not everything needs to be for you, and that is okay. This is definitely an earmuffs episode. We talk about sex a lot, so not a conversation for little ears, just a heads up. Now, if you're not familiar with Dr. Brighton, let me give you a brief background on her before I pass the mic. Dr. Jolene Brighton is a hormone expert, a nutrition scientist, and thought leader in women's medicine. She is board certified in naturopathic endocrinology and trained in clinical sexology. She is a fierce patient advocate, and as I referred to her in our conversation, (laughs) an advocate for self-sex, she's completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones through her website and social media channels. Dr. Brighton is an international speaker, clinical educator, and medical advisor within the tech community, and I am absolutely honored to have her back on the show. All right, welcome back to the show, Dr. Jolene Brighton. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm super excited to be chatting. Congrats on the new book. This is something that I'm like shouting from the rooftops. I want everybody to go buy it. I want, you know, practitioners, non-practitioners, everybody should have this on their bookshelf as a living resource. So thank you for writing this. It was much needed in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your high praise. So Listen, there's a lot of places that we can take this. Um, The book covers a lot. So you cover sex, you cover hormones, you cover cycles, you cover periods. I think for today's show, we've never really dove, divin, dove into sexual health before. So I would love 
for listeners to kind of um, get your hot take on sexual health. So I think we'll talk about the other vitamin D today. How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> um, I was like really surprised, but also maybe not surprised when I was reading the intro of your book and you were talking about in your survey, which by the way, had tons of people, 86,000 people. You said that 37% of those people did not feel comfortable going to their provider and talking to them about their sex life. Mm -hmm. And were you surprised by that? Or were you like, this seems pretty spot on? You know, I think I was surprised because as a provider, I'd like to believe that people are much more comfortable with their doctor. But when I really thought about it, I'm like, that's actually no surprise because people don't want to talk about these issues as it is. And they don't want to say out loud, like the concerns they have about their body sometimes. And to say it to somebody who maybe you haven't had a positive interaction with every time. Mm. A lot of us have gone to the provider, been told, you know, your symptoms are normal, your labs are normal, there's nothing that can be done. Um, these senses of it's all in your head, like that sentiment. So I think it's not shocking when you consider what a lot of women's experiences are. And as I say in the introduction of the book, a, a lot of women's medicine just feels like a conveyor belt of like pap smears. Like you just feel like, like a number going through they're just putting the speculum, taking taking a swab, and then sending you on your way. I also don't like for me, I'm 39 and there's no one like kind of telling me like this is what you need to do. I was talking mm -hmm. to friends like a couple like last year, and I was like, I haven't had a pap smear in like, you know, six years. They're like, What? They're like, you yeah. need to go in. I'm like, but nobody told me that. How would I know? So it's a little bit of like this mystery. I mean, women's bodies in and of themselves in like healthcare is a big, big fat question mark mystery. But I think especially when we start to drill into our sexual health, then it becomes even more so. And then not to mention all of the shame and the stigma mm -hmm. that surrounds sex and sexual health. And I would love to hear to kind of like kick off the conversation. Why, why do you think that is? Why is there so much shame around our sexuality? There's so much shame around our bodies, period. I mean, that, especially if you were born with ovaries, you get an extra layer of shame because as long as I have been alive, it wasn't until 2015 that they deemed it the year of the period. So as long as I've been alive, the period has been something that we shame people about, that we make people feel bad about. And then there's the act of sex that, I mean, sex in general has a lot of shame and stigma surrounding it because there's these pervasive narratives that exist in our society that may not be necessarily true for us, but things like sex is just for reproduction. Sex is something that you do hush-hush quietly behind, behind closed doors. But there's the other issue of in our society, this is not true of other societies, other countries are doing this differently, where parents don't talk to their children because nobody talked to their parents. And School made it weird. I, I ask a lot of people, like, what was your sex ed like? And they they remember more the feelings of shame, of embarrassment, the giggles, the I'm never going to talk about this again because the way I was made to feel. It's very astounding to me how many people cannot remember what they were taught, but they can remember exactly how they felt and what they felt was bad. It was some negative emotion. And I think when you walk away with your only experiences are either people don't say it to you or when they do talk to you about it, 
you feel bad about it. Like you don't have positive emotional connections to it. That that's going to breed shame. But there's, I mean, when you talk about why do we feel shame, there's just so many layers to it. I mean, there's just the fact that even as we go through puberty, we feel shame because we don't know what's normal. We don't know what's not normal. And we're looking at our body thinking, I've got to be the only one that's, that's, you know, going through this or experiencing these symptoms. Yeah. The isolation just kind of like perpetuates the feelings of shame too. You know what? Mm -hmm. I'm going to even layer onto that. Um, and I probably wouldn't have done this two weeks ago, but I met with a client who was brought up in a very strict, um, religious, uh, situation. I was raised Catholic, but like real loosely. So, um, so this kind of, to me feels like a little antiquated or outdated, but this is still happening. Um, where she was taught since childhood, through her religion, that her body or her flesh is sinful and it's not to be trusted. And so sex or enjoying the act of sex is really challenging for her because of these like ingrained beliefs that she has about her body. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there seems to be more of a of this around the female body than the male Mm -hmm. body. Uh, There's a lot there's a lot of things that come from religious text. And I'm not here to argue or even challenge people's beliefs when it comes to religion because I I talk in science and scientific studies and those kinds of facts. And when it comes to these religious beliefs, like this is not the same conversation and I am not going to try to get between you and your connection with whatever the higher power is that you believe in. Um, But I do think that there's a lot when you start to look at, I mean, in the United States, Christianity is the the most openly uh, talked about, it is the more common religion to come across, but it's not the only one, although most people do act like it's the only one, it seems, in the <laughs> United States. But there's a lot of ways that people have taken what is in the Bible and ran with it. And you know, a lot of that being stories around women's bodies, women's behavior, the way they should, shouldn't be. And then they place that on everyone else. And that's where I'm like, you, I respect your belief, but I draw the line on you placing your belief on anyone else for whatever reason. And I don't care. I simply do not care. If you believe you're doing the right thing, you don't have a right to put your laws, your beliefs, all of that on another human. I very much believe that we all have autonomy and we have the right to choose. So I think it does get complicated when you bring religion into things. And I mean, what are you going to say about it? Like purity culture is absolutely problematic. There's absolutely parts of this that are problematic for people's mental health, for their relationship with their body. Um, But, you know, there are aspects of of religion that can be really powerful and positively impactful on health, like this sense of community. So um, it is a tricky thing when you go there with like, okay, this is what you've been raised and taught to believe. And the question is really, and how well is that serving you? Well, that's exactly it. I think that's it. And in in this particular situation, we were talking about, we weren't even really having like the sex talk. We were more talking about how these innate beliefs or these ingrained beliefs that you have about Mm -hmm. your body may actually inhibit your body's capacity to heal. Um, Mm -hmm. She's somebody who's been dealing with like a tremendous amount of chronic health stuff. So that yeah. that's exactly it. It's just like, we're not trying to rob anybody of their beliefs, but there is always an opportunity to question our beliefs and say, is this actually serving me? Is this bringing me closer or further away to where I want to go? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I would assume I, I was laughing to myself because when you and I just did a recent Insta, uh, Instagram thing in your, one of your book covers, but actually both of them is, you know, has like vulva. Both have a vulva. And, yep. Yeah. And I was like, I referred to it as the vagina and you're like, so it's actually the vulva. And I'm like, here I am <laughs> 39 years old, calling it the wrong thing. And my daughter, who's about to turn it's nine. Super, like, super common. Yeah. yeah. No, but like, like, that's like, super hey, common. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. called the vulva. Um, but like, how how is that even the case? Like, we don't even know the appropriate names for our our lady bits. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, everything just gets called the vagina, but I mean, we don't even say vagina. Uh, people have all kinds of words. I go through like a whole list of words in the book of like different things. In my own house, I'll say chocha, right? And there are doctors out there that are like, it should only be anatomically correct all the time. And if you're not like, you're not a feminist or you're anti-women or you're this or you're that. And it's just like, again, that's great for you. In clinical practice, I'm going to use correct anatomical terms. When I am teaching it, I'm going to use correct anatomical terms. And then at times I'm making funny jokes about my body or stuff's going on. And I will just say that like, and that's the word that I use in my house. And I think it is totally fine to do that. Where we run into a problem is when it's like, I can only say flour. I can only say cookie. I can only Mm. say yoni because vulva and vagina is so dirty that it's my yoni. And like, fine, if that's what you want to do. But when you go to your doctor and you say, my yoni, I go inside, outside. What are we talking about here? And I ran into, so I worked in a homeless youth clinic and I found so many of the women, I want to say girls because they're young, but they're women. They did not know anything about their anatomy, anything about what it was called. And that is not because they weren't in school. They were in school. And a lot of uh, these cases they had had, they had had sex ed. Nobody was teaching them the anatomically correct parts. Where are you going to learn this? I mean, I had a computer when I was 21. That's when I first got a computer. So for my generation, where the hell was I going to get that information? Because you couldn't just walk into a library and easily access, find an anatomy textbook or even that I knew to find an anatomy textbook to know what everything was called. So I think there's the one, it's not polite to say that. So we don't say that. That's problematic. But two, that we just haven't been taught and everything gets called the vagina. And you even see oh man, these, um, these companies with their douches and their washes and their like shameful practices of like, oh, everything smells down there and you should smell like a clementine, which is weird because you're not a fruit. But they even go out and in their marketing say the external vagina. And I'm like, nice try. Nice try. There is no external vagina. If your vagina is external, something bad's happening. This is a problem. <laughs> It's like when you're talking about in school. I mean, I learned more about the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, than I did yeah, about my did. Own, like body parts. Hey, let's take a quick break so we can talk about low sugar nutrition. I'm always looking for kind of quick and dirty ways to pack in extra nutrition, polyphenols, antioxidants fibers for my gut, and even herbs for my stress response, like the more adaptogens, the better, which is why I use Organifi powders every day, several times a day. I love to put them into my water. This is great if you're one of those people that struggles to just get enough hydration, get enough water. And if you feel like water's really boring, these powders can zhuzh it up for you. My kiddo 
loves them. She feels like she's drinking juice. I also throw them into my smoothies just as a way to get some extra nutrition. My personal favorite is the red juice. So it has lots of different red powders, things like acai, cranberry, pomegranate, strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, all of those polyphenol-rich red and blue powders. And if you've listened to the show or you've seen me on Instagram, you've heard me talk about the benefits of these powders. They feed a very unique and particular type of bacteria in your gut called Ackermansia. Ackermansia is a keystone player. It's wicked important for keeping your gut healthy and strong. It prevents leaky gut. It also is very important for metabolic health and insulin signaling and controlling blood sugar. Now, unfortunately, I do a lot of stool tests on people and see that acromancia is low, sometimes even below detectable limits. That's a real bummer. Some of the bacteria in our guts are little piggies. They'll eat anything. And then some bacteria are more like snobby foodies that will only eat specific things. This acromancia bacteria loves to eat red polyphenols. So the more red foods you can eat, the better. And getting red powders is super important as well. So the red juice is something that you can grab super easy and it's low sugar. All of Organifi's powders are under three grams of sugar per serving. And most of them offer up fiber as well to counteract any spike in blood sugar. So highly recommend, I throw them in my smoothie so I can pack in a bunch of veggies without adding a ton of fruit that might spike my blood sugar. And I can still make them sweet and palatable. Go to Organifi's website, Organifi.com. You can click the link in the show notes. Be sure to use the code FUNK. It will save you 20% off of every single order you ever place. You get a good deal and you get to support all the good things in your body too. We also want to thank our other show sponsor, When I start to feel my stress and anxiety kick it up a notch, like Emeril Lagasse, I personally lean on Ned's De-Stress Blend. It's a certified organic formula that features two powerful plant compounds, CBD, and then the lesser known CBG, which is considered the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is for anxiety and stress. De-Stress Blend also features ashwagandha, one of my favorite adaptogens, And I think I say that about all the adaptogens, but ashwagandha was my gateway into adaptogenic herbs. So I do have a special love for it. Invest in yourself and fortify your stress response. Get 15% off of Ned's de-stress blend with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash FUNK or enter code FUNK at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. All right, back to the show. Um, But, well, I mean, you were talking, that's one of the things that... um, I'll often do is kind of ask people like, what's your first memory of body shame? And then Mm -hmm. I kind of bring forth, um, 
messages that we might not even be aware of that are just constantly eliciting shame. I remember watching TV with my husband and a commercial came on for douches and he was like, ew, because they were like, your vagina stinks. You're disgusting. You know what I mean? It's like so cloaked in shame. And then we wonder why we're running around like hiding parts of ourselves. It's because we've been taught to do this. It's been, we've been taught that they're dirty and disgusting and something to, to be ashamed about. Speaking of scent and odor, can we just talk about, your book is called, Is This Normal? So can we just talk about like what is normal in that capacity and how do we know if we have a problem? Uh, Because I think that's something that a lot of women feel like very self-conscious about. Yeah. Well, I wrote a whole chapter on discharge because this is an area where we're confused. We don't talk about it. And there's a lot of marketing, a lot of marketing that is meant to misinform us and to shame us. And with that, There's also these benign trends that go along, like eat pineapple and then you'll taste like pineapple. And we don't have any research to back that up. Maybe one day we will find that there is a threshold for certain people to eat pineapple and things to shift. But at this point, you're probably going to get diarrhea before you get any any kind of flavor profile changes down there. (laughs) Um, That's with the the pineapple. So with that, vaginas are supposed to smell like vaginas. They're supposed to taste like vaginas. And we all come with our own signature scent, our own signature flavor, if you will. And it's not Baskin Robbins. It's nothing you'll find at Baskin Robbins, even though that's what you've been told. So with that, I have a whole chart in the book about how to tell if your discharge is normal or not. I take you through texture, take you through odor, take you through what does it look like? So just the consistency and the way that it looks, because that can be very telling of your health. It's important to recognize that when we talk about discharge, it's not always a bad thing. So the vagina cleans itself, which is why we, we have these fluids that come out. It also has to keep everything juicy and lubricated down there. Um, not just lubricated for sex, but also just we need to have moisture. It's a moist environment. It's just like your mouth. So just like your mouth needs to be lubricated and moist, so does your vagina. And just like your mouth can have odor changes and that signifies that there's an infection or there's a problem, so can the vagina. And it's funny because you know, we do make fun of people having bad breath and we make fun of vaginal odor a lot. And it is really something that shouldn't be, I mean, it shouldn't be something that we're joking about because these are medical conditions going on. So with vaginal odor, if it's ever fish-like, it smells like someone's baking bread, you're like, something smells like it's rotting down there. Yes, that can happen because of STIs or a forgotten tampon. That's a problem. That's definitely worth getting checked out. And if it is ever something that you're like, it just doesn't feel right down there, also worth getting checked out and understanding what could possibly be going on there. But in general, I just think it's just really important to understand that you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to smell like a fruit or vanilla or anything else. And you're not supposed to taste like those things either. And a lot of times what gets overlooked when we talk about odor down there is that the same kind of glands that are in your armpit are also in your groin. So sometimes people are like, oh, I need to douche. I need to do something. And what they really need to do is just wash their groin the same way they'd wash their armpits, change their gym clothes and and make those kinds of changes. And it has nothing to do with the vagina. So it's like more of an external thing than necessarily an internal thing. Exactly. um, So like if there's a big shift, if you notice a big change in the odor, that might be a little bit of a red flag. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yes, okay. definitely if there's a shift in the odor, if you are smelling it, if you're sitting there and you're smelling like, hmm, what is that? There's probably something going on and it's worth investigating. Okay. That's good to know. Let's um, switch gears into talking specifically about like sex uh, and orgasms. I, I would love to hear everything you have to say about this. In your book, you re- reference the orgasm gap. So I feel like that's a really good place to start. What is that? Is that real? What's up with that? Yeah. Okay. So there's a whole chapter on orgasms. You're like, I'd love to hear everything you have to say about that. I'm like, wow, that's like a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. In, <laughs> it's all in the book. Yeah. What so, is, let, let me ask, what's the purpose in the of an orgasm? Is it to feel pleasure or are there other things going on? Okay. Well, let's let's talk about that and then we'll talk about the orgasm gap then. So I'm cool. um, keeping track of all our questions here. So firstly, the clitoris exists solely for pleasure. Uh, if you have a vulva, you have a clitoris and that has no other purpose than pleasure. And in that pleasure, hormones are released that help you feel less stressed. They help you pair bond. Um, you get contractions, rhythmic contractions of the pelvis. You experience increased blood flow. So there's a lot of benefits. So for us, it's like, oh, this is all about pleasure. And for the entire body, it's like, well, lots is going, lots of things are going on. We've got these hormonal changes. We've got these endorphins. We've got immune system support and regulation that come from orgasm. So there's a lot of times that I, I actually just had this on social media where a, a a a gaggle of men who were very angry because whenever I talk about the orgasm gap, they're like, you just hate men. And I'm like, what part of this, like, it, are you upset that the science exists or are you upset that we're talking about it? What part of this makes you think that we hate men? Because no. Uh, and if you read my book, it will become very apparent that it's not about that. I'm like, let's teach clitoracy for everybody. Um, <laughs> so with that, the orgasm gap, this is where it, it exists solely in heterosexual couples. This is why there's gaggles of men who get so um, upset. And what it is, is that in heterosexual couples, men are orgasming at a rate about 95% of the time and women are orgasming at 65%. So it's a big gap in terms of who's orgasming and who's not. And these same gaggle of men like to come in with the argument that women's orgasms are not necessary because they, they don't result in procreation. They don't result in a baby. Therefore, there's no reason for women to have an orgasm. And I'm like, sir, did you really just tell on yourself on the internet? Um, I would just <laughs> keep that to yourself. Um, that's that's a total BS argument. And the reason why it's a BS argument is because we do know that regular orgasms, they're associated with longevity. Regular orgasms, they are associated with helping optimize our other hormones and regulate the menstrual cycle, helping with immune system function. They're doing a lot more in the body. But this is where that problematic thought of sex is only for reproduction comes from. That people are like, well, if it's not if it's not necessary to make a baby, then it's not necessary. Well, there's people who don't want babies. There's people who can't have babies. There are people who are postmenopausal. And as I learned in college a very, very long time ago, um, the elderly people are very sexually active. And this, I remember being in my 20s, sitting in a psychology class while I was getting my minor um, 
on this is like you know geriatric psychology and i was just shocked by like all these geriatric people were like swingers they were like they had like uh you know other girlfriends because boyfriends because they'd been together so long and they wanted to experiment in their sex life and then the rate of stis among elderly people and then in medical school they're like oh man if you work with the geriatric population it's test for utis test for stis because they don't need to use contraception anymore. They're actually very sexually active now that that threat of pregnancy is not there. And because of the way their immune system functions, they may not have a fever or the classic signs that you would see with these infections. So that is all to say that lots of people are having orgasms as they should, and not one of them has anything to do with having a baby. And I would also argue as a mom, as somebody who has been impregnated, um, you you should still be trying for orgasms. I think it's just a really good practice to bring pleasure into the bedroom rather than focus on just like, you know, make sure that egg and sperm get together. It's like, what's the sense in denying pleasure? Like, you know, what is that about? I don't even like, I'll go on interviews and people will be like, what's your guilty pleasure for food? I'm like, let's just talk about why that phrase is problematic to begin with. It's like- I'm not guilty about any of it. Oh my God. That's so funny. I mean, people love to be like, what's your guilty pleasure? And I'm like, do you really feel guilty about pleasure? But I feel like that is a very much a, a wellness concept. And I think that is- we, we, I should, I do feel like we should talk about that for a minute because I yeah. think this is where, you know, we, so we talked about like the religious influence on sex and shame and all of that. And then the idea that like, it's just for making babies. So other, if it's not that, then like, who cares? Or like, don't talk about it, whatever. And then there is the, you know, wellness industry and the, and the people that it's like not that far off from, from the religious aspect of things of like, you shouldn't be having pleasure where it's like. If you're eating food and it's pleasurable, you're doing it wrong because food is fuel and it shouldn't be anything else. I hate that. I hate when people say that. I'm like, we're not friends. Like immediately, no. Like I can't hang out with you because we did not develop taste buds for nothing. Just like we didn't develop a clitoris for nothing. We retained our clitoris for a reason. So, you know, with that, I think we do have to recognize that there are ways that are problematic that we talk about pleasure that then people carry over to the bedroom. So when you're talking about, oh, that's your guilty pleasure, that really lends itself to when people are like, if it's not the missionary heteronormative for this point of just making a baby kind of sex, then it's something else. It's like guilty pleasure, so to speak. Uh, people usually use much more damning language than that. But I think that as you bring that up, we just have to be really aware that our sex life, we don't, we can't compartmentalize it and we act like we can and we can't. And if we are talking that way in other parts of our life, then it's carrying over. Let's take a quick break so we can talk about element I'm so pumped to hear that you guys are digging this stuff. I knew you would. It's so freaking tasty. I did get a question about sodium. Somebody asked if I was concerned with the sodium content, and the answer is not at all. In fact, that's why I sought out Element as my electrolyte drink of choice. Active athletes, especially during hot weather, can lose up to seven grams of sodium per day just through sweat alone. And in order to replete that, to replace that, we need both water 
and sodium so we can reestablish appropriate and proper hydration. I'm active. I like to do hot yoga. Honestly, on my hot yoga days, I actually double down on Element. I know many of you are active as well. So this is something that we really should be mindful of. Salt has been villainized. It's not the bad guy. We need salt. We need minerals. We need electrolytes. And if you want to do it in a yummy way, Element is your thing. So right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. So that's eight packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try the flavor, see what you like. And you can get it at drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal is only available through my link. You got to go to drinklmnt.com forward slash funk. You also get a no questions asked refund. So try it risk-free. You're going to love it. In episode 233, Protein Intake in Building Muscle Mass, I talked about why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. We discuss it in a lot of detail. Amino acids make up half of your solid body mass. After water, they're the second most abundant substance in your body. Your body can make some amino acids, but essential amino acids like Keon Aminos really have to be obtained through protein or supplementation. And if you're deficient in them, you will not be able to build new muscle. Keon Aminos isn't just good for muscle. I've also noticed more energy, better recovery as well. It contains all nine essential amino acids. It's backed by over 20 years of clinical research. Super clean, tastes amazing with awesome flavors. Mango and lime are my favorite. If you're ready to simplify your supplement routine and you want to save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases, go to getkeon.com forward slash funk. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash funk. Funk to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. And I would imagine too, just from like a like a arousal perspective, if you're feeling guilty for receiving pleasure, it's going to be really hard to actually like allow the body to feel that pleasure. So it's probably going to impact your capacity and your ability to orgasm anyway. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is where like I think about Brene Brown and her work and I'm like, can we all just like take this into like, like can Brene, do you want to hang out and talk about sex and about shame and vulnerability and about how guilt and all of that can negatively impact us? So yeah, anything, anything that gets in the way of us being present in our body and present with the sensations that we are experiencing has the capacity to keep you from staying aroused or even getting aroused and definitely keep you from having an orgasm. And there is a phenomenon in the research known as spectatoring that's been defined that I think everybody has done at some point and can really, I really jive with this idea that we literally take ourselves onto the stands. We are on the sideline watching ourselves, judging ourselves, being, you know, sometimes, sometimes maybe cheering yourself on, but most of the time it is judging yourself, thinking about like, what do I look like right now? Oh, is it weird that I asked for that? Oh, is it weird that like they're doing that and I enjoy it? Like these kinds of things that we're, we're spectating, we're watching our body rather than being in our body that can completely hijack, not just arousal, but orgasms and your ability to connect with your partner. You know, even you saying like asking for that, I would, I would feel no, you know, having worked with so many women and knowing how challenging self-expression can be, how hard it can be to state our needs or even identify our needs, never mind state our needs. 
like asking somebody or explaining to somebody like how this is what to do to make me feel good, like that must be a really challenging thing for a lot of people. Absolutely. Even as I said it, I just kind of laughed in my mind as I was saying it. So I love that you bring this back that I was like asking for that as if that's so easy for people. (laughs) But, But if you do get to the point of asking for something and it's the first time or you've been struggling with it, that is absolutely a time that you can find yourself being like, oh God, should I, should I have, should I not have? Um, with knowing your own pleasure in the book, I have an exercise on pleasure mapping and really understanding things that bring you pleasure other than just what you've been taught sex is. And for mm-hmm. most people, if sex ed is what taught you what sex is, it is a penis goes into vagina, vaginal penetration, that's sex. And that's where this idea of foreplay comes from, which is a joke of a term because foreplay is sex. Foreplay is sex and it can be satisfying and can be completely enough for you. And you and your partner can be like, that's the best thing ever. And then society is like, that was just foreplay though. And the main event wasn't achieved. And now you think, oh, something's wrong with me. So the pleasure mapping exercise, I really encourage everybody to try that. You can do it on your own or you can do it with your partner. And it really helps you understand other ways that can bring pleasure and it's a way to explore your body as well. And in doing that, you now know what to ask for. You know the things that you like. There's um, also the exercise of going through and thinking about the best sex you've ever had and conveying that to your partner. I think a lot of the times whenever we think about like how do we talk to our partner, it's a lot about like what don't I want? What do I not like? And really focusing in on, I really enjoyed this. I really like that. The majority of partners, so this is where I always get very um, confused by these men who are like, you just hate men. And I'm like, except that like, I totally defend you guys all the time because I am convinced that the majority of you absolutely do want to bring your partner pleasure. I think that partners in any type of relationship absolutely want to bring them their part their partner's pleasure they think for men there's a lot of pressure around that they're just supposed to be good at sex they're supposed to be a stallion they're supposed to be a womanizer they're supposed to be all these things and there's a lot of pressure in society to be that and yet they don't always know how and that's where this communication is so key it's not just enough to know your partner's anatomy and to know that like this This is generally like what a vulva likes, but to also have that communication with them about what do they like? Because cyclically that can change as well. What they're into one moment, they might not be into the next. And you're like, what happened? Hormones happened. That's what happened. Well, say more on that. Like, do you mean cyclical hormones? Like that can change throughout the the cycle, the monthly cycle? Yeah. So cyclical hormones, they, they're called cyclical hormones. Ovarian hormones are going to change throughout your menstrual cycle. And those are going to impact your, your ability to orgasm, your, uh, your inclination to fantasize. So when estrogen and testosterone are up higher, we find ourselves fantasizing more. Uh, sexual stimuli. People are always like, oh, so like when my partner like engages in foreplay? No. Like, any kind of sexual stimuli, like scrolling social media, and there's something sexy that happens. Even if you're like, I'm not into that, your brain can still be like, oh, is that sex? And your genitals are like, hey, 
sex. Let's get, let's get this party started. And then you're like, but wait, I don't like this. I'm not into this normal to go through. And that can happen, you know, that can happen for some people all the time. And for other people, it's just around uh, ovulation when their estrogen and testosterone are highest. And so, you know, the other thing that I think gets overlooked in the sex talk is breasts. So I have a whole chapter on breast health and for people to realize that they respond to hormones as well. So, so much sex talk is always about like down there are the genitals, but the breasts are, they're a very erogenous zone. And as you get closer to your period, they're going to be more tender. You're going to be probably less into them being stimulated. Whereas on your period, that's when we tell women like, do your breast self-exam. It's also when somebody grabbing your breast and there being more pressure might be pleasurable. Whereas just before your period, when the breasts were really sensitive and tender, not pleasurable at all. Nipple sensitivity, I talk about that in the book, how it can change throughout your menstrual cycle. So I map all of this out in the book so that you can understand that this might happen for you. It's not going to be true for everyone. And that's what I want people to really embrace is this is this, you know, what's your normal but this guideline of like what these hormones do can be really helpful because one month it may absolutely be true for you. And you're like, what is happening in my body? Or your partner, who I hope reads the book, is like, what's happening to your body? Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, from the, the male perspective, as you were talking about, it might be like a huge relief for them to be like, oh my God, now I know what to do rather than trying to like figure it out or guess or intuit, you know, just being told explicitly like, hey, this is what makes me feel good. And so that could potentially alleviate some of the awkwardness for their partner to feel like, oh, who am I to really like say this? Um, well, you- I just want to say on that, there was a uh, Justin Lee Miller, Dr. Justin Lee Miller did some great research about fantasies and about what he wrote a book uh, it's called Tell Me What You Want and talks about this research. Many, many people, many people like spicy talk. They like to be talked dirty to. And so that's something to keep in mind is that you giving directions to your partner can actually be really stimulating to them really enjoyable. And then them giving directions to you or giving you feedback. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, we don't talk about sex outside the bedroom. So I want to talk about sex inside the bedroom. And I just feel like I just feel all this pressure, but not realizing that that stimulation for the brain of hearing that sexy talk can really heighten the experience. And when people are anonymous, they report they're really into it. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, going back to that pleasure map that you that is in the book, the pleasure mapping, um, you had mentioned that you can do that yourself. And I know that you are an advocate for self-sex, for masturbation. Do, do you feel that this can be helpful for those who struggle with reaching orgasm, reaching climax? Can masturbation be uh, a way to help them and even their partner? I like that you, no one's ever called me an advocate for self-sex. Sorry, I'm like trying not to crack up right now. Um, I'm just like, I'm like, am I? I mean, I guess I am. I'm not against it. And I I do think it's a great way to explore your body. So the pleasure map. Well, you take a lot of the shame and the stigma out of it. I think that's fair to say. That is definitely fair to say, but I'm like, maybe I should add that to my title now. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think there is a book up and coming that is definitely an advocate uh, for this and is going to bring all the science. So um, I'm not going to steal his thunder. Okay. Okay. So anyhow, the pleasure mapping, no genitals are touched in pleasure mapping. Okay. So pleasure mapping is about exploring other sensations. One of the ways that um, sex counselors, sex therapists will use this exercise is when people feel a lot of pressure around having sex, like the the typical like penetrative sex. And they feel like everything always comes down to like, there's a lot of pressure. They have to orgasm, a lot of pressure of like, it's a expectation, if you will. And because of that, it takes them, they can't even get a pleasurable experience. And so this is a way of exploring the body and having pleasure for pleasure's sake that helps retrain the nervous system as well to be associating all of this with pleasure and taking away that major amount of pressure that for some people can completely put them out of the mood. So that's one piece. Now, the other piece about um, self-pleasuring is a great way to see what you like and what does it for you. How can you give someone instructions and directions when you have no idea? Maybe you've never orgasmed because you've never tried or because you've you've been dependent on just vaginal penetration because society's like that is the way to orgasm and because well because freud was like hey that clitoral orgasm is so infantile you should be trying for a vaginal orgasm that's like the gold standard friends and it's like yeah that's convenient for a penis owner to say like mm, i there's no agenda there so the reality is, is that most women are not going to orgasm by vaginal penetration alone. It's uh, roughly around like 18%. And it has a lot to do with anatomy, not with your partner's moves, not with you, but just like, and, and we don't totally understand this, right? Because like sex research is limited, but there is research to suggest it's all about like, where is the introitus, the opening of the vagina in relation to the clitoris? And like, how is all of that set up? So like, you can't change your anatomy. And why would you? Why would you want to? It's beautiful. It's amazing the way it is. But the clitoral stimulation is where it's at for the majority of women who are going to orgasm and understanding what you like. So in the, there's actually research that's like, okay, here's what women report that they like, which is rhythmic motion. So get on a beat, friends. Like find that rhythm. Usually it's a, a couple of fingers, the palm of the hand, multiple fingers, gentle back and forth or circular, none of this like really rapid. I, I think we see that a lot in the movies where it's like this really rapid, like wiggle, 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 wiggle. And it's like, ah, you know, it's always better to start slow and low. You can add more pressure. You can add more speed. But most, you know, people aren't going to just intuitively know that. They're like, and are they reading the research on this? Probably not. And I think that's where self-exploration can be helpful and also understanding that there's sometimes where people are like, masturbation is wrong. It's a sin. It's all of these things. And yet they don't recognize that like, it doesn't always have to be solo. You can, this can be something done with a partner. And there's a lot to be said for it because if you are somebody who has had a pelvic injury, pelvic surgery, you're pregnant, like there's something like going on that like you can't be having sex this is one way that you and your partner can still have a sexual experience and connect if you'd like. Yeah, that's such a good point because I know that you you discuss libido and sex drive in the book and we've cut you've kind of 
talked about how our, our hormone fluctuations may impact that. Um, but one of the reasons people might not want to have sex is because sex can hurt. There can be pain yes. with sex, you know? And so our, you know, we have to find ways to troubleshoot that for, for folks who are dealing with significant pain. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. There's, so there's a chapter called sex of all kinds in my book, which I thought, I think everybody was like, Ooh, we're going to have like some really, really spicy stuff. And you get that. But we start with pain with sex. And even my editor was like, this is where we're going to start. Like, I feel like you, like you were saying sex of all kinds and we're going to start just with pain with sex. And I'm like, it is so common. I mean, some estimates are three out of four women have had pain with sex and doctors are really, they're ill-equipped. They are ill-equipped when it comes to helping women with sexual pain or sex in general, unless you get a specially trained provider or somebody that's just, you know, done the work to understand this. Because a lot of times the rhetoric is like, just have a glass of wine and use some lube and you'll be fine. When it could be a sign of endometriosis, um, it could be vulvodynia. Like it could, I go through the book, a whole list of things that it could be. And it's where people can get stuck because they're like, well, if I am in a heterosexual relationship and I can't have penetrative sex, like I can't have sex. And yet the stuff that I think I think a lot of reasons why there's – so there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of misinformation about sex, but people don't see these other forms of sex as sex is because of religion and because that helps them keep their virginity because they haven't had technically sex, which what they're saying is they haven't had vaginal penetration. And as I bust the myth in the book, there is no such thing as virginity. People are going to come for me. They always do. But look, if your religion says there's virginity, understand that that's their, they've made this construct up. Society made this construct up. It doesn't exist in science and it doesn't exist in medicine. And why that is important to understand is there's no test for virginity. There is no medical marker of virginity. And I talk a lot about the hymen and about, you know, people being like, well, you know, the, the hymen, it's all about the hymen. And I'm like, there are just so many reasons to have variations in a hymen and not, not any of that has to do with sex. You better put, tell T.I. Uh, I call him out in my book, T.I., if you're listening, uh, that was bullshit. And also I'm with the World Health Organization in that like, that's, there's a lot of organizations that are basically like, it's a human rights issue. It is mm-hmm. a, you just think about like the fact that somebody is taking you to the doctor to be like, look at her vulva and tell me whether or not she's a virgin, an adult daughter, you're you're grown you're a grown ass man. What is wrong with you? You don't own that body. That's not your body. That's her body. I got so many issues with Ti. It's like, damn it, I like your music, but God, oh, you ruined it. You ruined it for us, Ti. Meet me in a dark alley. We're going to have some talks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we started off the conversation with religion. We ended with religion. So we are sure to piss people off with this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope not. I mean, why? the whole reason of bringing up the religion point, though, is just so that people understand that, like, that is a religious construct that has influenced society. And for you to understand where that comes from and that that if you want to if you want to subscribe to that and that's part of your belief system that's fine but if you are somebody who's also been like but that doesn't make any sense and i want to tell you there is no science to back that up and that is doctors 
we cannot diagnose this. We cannot diagnose virginity. It's not a thing. The hymen didn't, the hymen doesn't even exist for a penis. Okay. It's not there for that. And that is something that I think is so problematic of how often it is a male-centered perspective being applied to the female body, that the female body solely exists for men's pleasure, for men in any way. Like, if you want to be with a man, I am with a man. It is a partnership. Like, and it's just, I don't know. It just is so troubling in so many ways because it leaves us with these ideas that we're broken, we're flawed, uh, you know, all of these different things that we get in our head that really, where did those come from? Those came from somebody else's ideas trying to apply them to your body. And it may not be true for you. And that's okay. And that doesn't mean you're not normal. Can I get an amen? What a way to go out. So thank you so much. I agree wholeheartedly with all of this. And I'm so appreciative of you and your work and your willingness to be a voice piece um, for all of this, you know, sometimes kind of awkward, clunky stuff. So I appreciate you so, so much. Everybody go buy the book. Is this normal? We'll link it up in the show notes. You will not regret it. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.